Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is an Apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. As you heard in part one of Rejecting Linkin Park, Zero and their publisher, Jeff Blue, were rejected by countless labels. Then they received a single offer from Geffen Records. But before they accepted, Zero decided to put on a public showcase against Blue's advice to shop that offer around. It was December 10th, 1998, two weeks before Christmas. Jeff Blue ran to the bathroom. His stomach was in knots. Leading up to Christmas was a horrible time to put on a showcase. Label executives' calendars were filled to the brim with holiday parties and tropical vacations. No one was going to show up. But he wondered, maybe that was a good thing. If no one showed up, then Zero would save itself from embarrassment. They'd never put on a successful showcase before, and they'd just gone ahead and invited the whole of the music industry under one roof to watch them perform. As Blue tells the story in his book, the thought of the floor staying empty that night eased his anxiety. Then a woman tapped him on the shoulder, an executive from Arista Records. She bought Blue a drink, then said she had a surprise for him. 
she led him across the room to the door and told him to take a peek outside. Parked along the street was the longest line of limos Blue had ever seen. He said there was no way they were all there for zero. But one by one, top executives stepped out of their limos and up to the box office. The head of Sony, Epic, Capital, Atlantic, DreamWorks, RCA, Columbia, and Reprise Warner. He said Madonna's right-hand man, dozens of managers, and tastemakers all filed in. Then, that same Arista executive grabbed his hand. She said, Jeff Blue, meet Clive Davis. It was one of those moments in life where you all but black out. Meeting his idol, Clive Davis, the man responsible for Whitney Houston and Bruce Springsteen, and founder of Arista Records. Blue managed to stumble over a few semi-coherent words before Davis moved on to greet the rest of the now-packed room. All around Blue were names he'd only read about in the music magazines he wrote for back in the day. A flurry of handshakes, banter, and expectations. Everyone was curious about the next big act from the man who discovered Macy Gray. Then, a familiar face appeared. It was Danny Goodwin from Virgin, one of the few A&R people to show even mild interest in Zero early on. Goodwin told Blue he'd pulled all the strings that pulled all the Virgin bigwigs out of their annual Christmas parties to be there tonight. So, Zero better deliver. Suddenly, Blue started reevaluating the evening. Maybe this showcase wasn't such a bad idea after all. He figured, worst-case scenario, out of the 30 labels in attendance, three or four could be sitting in his office the next morning. Zero could either accept one of their offers or let the buzz up Geffen's existing offer. He said, either way, they'd be driving red Ferraris by week's end. The room was so packed, it was like they were waiting to discover the next Nirvana. And soon, the clock struck ten. The ambient background music came down. Showtime. But after a minute or so, nothing happened. Zero didn't appear on stage. Now, it was just a silent room. Where was the band? By 10.10, the executives who had left their turkey and champagne on a whim were starting to get agitated, wondering aloud if they should have listened to their better judgment. So Blue sprinted backstage. Zero was just sitting there, waiting, as if an entire room of executives wasn't on the other side of the curtain waiting for them. Blue asked what they could possibly be doing. The band's lead singer, Mark Wakefield, said with enviable confidence that they were simply building anticipation. But this was precisely why Blue had tried talking them out of a showcase in the first place. Showcases were, under normal circumstances, carefully calculated events, the details of which were best left to professionals in the industry who understood the psychology at play. Top executives didn't enjoy waiting around for nobodies. Their time was to be respected. Building anticipation was best left to bands with actual fans. Blue told them to get out there, then made his way back into the audience, sweating profusely. 
As he looked up, he saw people heading for the door. Then, just as he was ready to crawl out of his own skin and never show his face at an industry event again, Blue says the lights went up and the music blared from the speakers, cracking the tension in the room like a lightning bolt. The band stepped on stage, Brad hit his signature guitar riff, and the executives headed for the door, suddenly turned back around. Okay, maybe the night could be salvaged. Blue could breathe again. Then the music stopped altogether, and Blue couldn't believe his eyes. The band started tuning their instruments. The band that had made everyone wait was now making sure their instruments were in tune on stage at a showcase. Blue went numb. Zero started up again. They lost a few more executives in the lull, but Blue says for the rest of the set, they played their hearts out. Though, even Blue, with all his hopes and all his biases, knew there was something wrong. Something glaring. Something no executive worth their salt could deny. Mark Wakefield's vocals were pitchy. It was strike three. After their last song, Blue cheered loudly, but he says his applause was met only with echoes. As he turned around, the room was empty. There was one executive left, and he wasn't in a mood to hold back. He said that was painful. Like cats and dogs fighting. You should probably go underground for six months after this show. Blue says he didn't know whether to throw up or to cry. But either way, he had to shelve his real feelings and go backstage to tell the band what a great job they did. It didn't do any good to discourage artists. Plus, it was a tough crowd. But he wasn't as convincing as he thought. The band noticed the color had disappeared entirely from Blue's face. They asked if he was okay. He blamed it on a questionable sandwich he'd eaten earlier and headed straight for his car. In one fell swoop, everything he feared had come true. His career was in jeopardy, and Zero's prospects were sub-zero. As he opened the door to his Toyota parked out back, he said, I can't stand Ferraris anyway. Over the next few days, the rejections came pouring in. Label after label officially passed on Zero. But even those paled in comparison to the news that would cross his desk next. Shortly after the showcase fiasco, Blue learned there had been some shuffling over at Geffen Records. The person who had offered him an A&R job and the opportunity to sign Zero as his first official act was no longer at the label. Their champion was gone. Remember, Geffen was willing to sign Zero sight unseen. Well, now the entire industry had seen them, and no one was going to board that Titanic. Just like that, Blue's dream job and the band's record deal were gone. Then it got even worse. Danny Goodwin, the Virgin executive who vouched for Blue and Zero, the one who pulled all the bigwigs away from their Christmas dinners just to watch the worst showcase of the century, was fired. His bosses thought his actions that night showed poor judgment. They didn't trust his ears anymore, and they let him go. The wreckage of the showcase was even more widespread than Blue realized. 
The next morning, Brad Delson breezed into Blue's office, eager to find out how many labels had made them offers. Blue didn't know where to start. I told you so wouldn't begin to cover it. He told him the bad news, that zero labels wanted to sign them, including Geffen. He told Delson to call an emergency band meeting. But this time, he said, don't tell Mark. As five of the six members of Zero filed into Blue's office, it was obvious they knew what was coming. So Blue cut to the chase. Almost all of the negative feedback from the showcase was about the lead singer. In fact, almost all the negative feedback from every performance they'd ever done pointed to the vocals. So, if they wanted to move forward, two things had to happen. One, they needed to rebrand the band. And two, they had to replace Wakefield. Blue says he didn't relish firing Mark. In fact, when he was a young musician himself, he was Mark, let go from more than one band, left behind, humiliated. But Blue owed it to the band, just like the band owed it to Zomba, to be the best they could be. So they made a plan. They'd invite Wakefield to a fancy dinner in Westwood. Mere days before Christmas, the band sat down for dinner with Blue under the guise of a Zomba holiday party. Shinoda, Farrell, Han, Burden, and Delson pushed their food around their plates and shuffled in their seats. Blue knew his job was to be the bad guy, so he waded in gently. He told Wakefield about the feedback they'd been getting. Wakefield nodded, so Blue continued. He said the vocals needed to be stronger or the band wouldn't survive. Wakefield said he agreed and he would work harder, be better, practice more. But Blue insisted it wasn't a matter of practicing, and he told Wakefield he was out. Wakefield stood up and stormed out of the restaurant. He couldn't believe he was being kicked out of his own band. But by the time Blue caught up with him outside, Blue says... Wakefield confessed. He'd actually been thinking of leaving for some time now. Zero was a sinking ship. Blue says searching for Zero's new lead singer was a, quote, full-time job filled with constant rejection. He was tasked with spotting a diamond in the rough, and there was a lot of rough. One weekend, Blue was in Austin, Texas, at the South by Southwest Music Festival. He was staying at the Embassy Suites, he says, bunking with all the indie bands and roadies. But across the way was the Four Seasons, where the industry's top brass were, quote, drinking their expense accounts away at the hotel bar. So Blue wandered over. He met up with some acquaintances in the biz, and they started chatting. He regaled them with his struggles to find a new lead singer for Zero. They reminisced about the infamous showcase. But then one of them had a thought. He knew of a kid out of Phoenix with an amazing voice who had just left his band. Blue, desperate, got this mystery kid's phone number and called him right there on the spot. The kid answered the phone, 
but Blue could barely hear him. In the background was a heavy bass, clinking bottles, and loud voices. Turns out, he was right in the middle of his 23rd birthday party. So Blue yelled into the receiver. He told him he had a band in LA that was going to be, quote, huge, a mix of rap and rock that needed a singer with edge. The voice on the line was intrigued. Blue said he'd send him two tracks, one with the current vocals and one with no vocals at all. If he wanted a shot at being their lead singer, he'd need to record his own vocals over the second track and get them onto Blue's desk by Monday morning. But that would mean leaving his own birthday party. Blue said, take it or leave it. Oh, and happy birthday, Chester. His name was Chester Bennington. And what Blue didn't know at the time was that he had just declared he was giving up music. After too many frustrating dead ends with Phoenix-based bands, he was done. He'd gotten a real job in real estate and figured he'd just do the music thing on the side for fun. When he got the call from Blue. Coming from an LA executive, it sounded fancy. He listened to the tracks and said he just knew. This band was going to be something. The following Monday morning, Blue was still recovering from the weekend's festivities when he got a phone call from an unknown number. It was Bennington. He said he'd finished recording his vocals over all the tracks and asked if he could play them for Blue right there over the phone. Blue was shocked. He couldn't believe he'd actually left his own birthday party at the request of a stranger. He was impressed by his work ethic. So Bennington held the phone up to his speakers and hit play. Blue says the music was completely distorted through the phone. He could barely tell which song was playing. He plugged one ear and pressed his phone into the other. Then, out of nowhere, Bennington's vocals cut through the distortion. He says it was like a shot of adrenaline. He got chills. Bennington's voice was energetic, angst-filled, and urgent, everything the band needed in a lead singer. When the song ended, Bennington brought the phone back up to his ear and asked Blue what he thought. Blue told him he sounded fantastic. He had a magic in his voice Blue hadn't come across in a very long time. Bennington said, So, am I in? Blue told him that was a band decision and requested he come to Los Angeles, ASAP. Before Bennington arrived in LA, Blue sent his demo to the band. They recognized his talent instantly, but they had two concerns. As Blue tells the story, Brad Delson wasn't so sure Bennington matched the vibe they were going for, And second, he wondered what their possible new frontman looked like. So Blue told him Bennington was a full-on rock star, tattooed and ripped. But that was a lie. The truth was, Blue had never seen a picture of Bennington. He forgot to ask. He was painting a picture purely off the sound of his voice. The next day, Bennington arrived in L.A. and drove straight to Zamba's offices. He stepped into the elevator and made his way up to Blue's floor, where the receptionist was waiting to take him to Blue's office. 
when they knocked on the door, Blue looked up from his desk in total astonishment. There was no long blonde hair and an unwashed ponytail, no bulging biceps, no worn-out Metallica tee or baggy jeans. Standing in front of him was a nerdy-looking kid wearing black-rimmed glasses. He says he was tiny, all of five foot eight, and frail-looking. He had an innocent face, one you'd see on the back of a milk carton. And he had on a black, glittery t-shirt. Blue couldn't believe those angsty, raspy, powerful vocals came out of the president of the chemistry club standing before him. This was going to make him an even harder sell to the band. But he called them in. When the band met Chester Bennington for the first time, they liked him. But over the next month, they continued auditioning other singers. Which was fine, except Bennington was sleeping in his car while they did so. He couldn't afford to stay in a hotel for that long, so he spent most nights in his piece-of-junk two-door with two burnt-out lights and an outright refusal to exceed third gear. He'd been away from home in Phoenix for four weeks now, and the band still hadn't made him a formal offer. That's when Blue stepped in. He told the band crashing in one's car for that long had a special way of dampening one's spirits. And while it was their right to see what else was out there, they had to decide, either hire him or cut him loose. And by the way, if they wanted Blue's opinion, it was that cutting him loose would be a huge mistake. The band hemmed and hawed for a little while longer, then they finally came to a consensus. Bennington wasn't that good. He was great, and Zero had found its new lead singer. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. With a brand new lead singer, Blue decided it was time to rebrand the band. They had no press, no fans, and no hit songs. Plus, they had all that baggage from the catastrophic showcase. They were starting this new chapter at a deficit. So he proposed a new name. But the band was one step ahead of him. They'd already come up with one they all agreed on. Hybrid Theory. Hybrid Theory basically encapsulated what made the band different. They were a hybrid of rap and rock, plus they had two vocalists, lead singer and rapper. So the band left Zero and its stigma behind them and entered this new phase of their music, feeling positive. Hybrid Theory started rehearsing together a little apprehensively. With the addition of Bennington, there was new energy in the room. The rest of the band had known each other for years. It would take a little getting used to. But from their very first official rehearsal, Blue says the chemistry was undeniable. They'd found their sound. But still, Blue needed something new to present to labels. They'd have to write a hit song. In no time, the band was sitting in Blue's office with a brand new demo in hand. Eight tracks total, some Zero songs, some Hybrid Theory songs. They sat down on his couch and stared at him anxiously until he popped the disc into his CD player. He said the first song was underwhelming. The second one felt a little all over the place. The third was forced and trite. Blue wiped the cringy look off his face, realizing the guys were staring at it intently to gauge his feelings on each track. Overall, Blue was disappointed. The magic just wasn't there. Then the final song played, and it changed everything. Bennington's vocals soared. It sent chills down his spine. This one he loved, and not just because it was titled Blue. It still needed work, but it was a neon sign that the band was headed in the right direction. Blue recommended they keep chipping away at that one. Meanwhile, it was time to go back to showcasing. Not their forte, but with a new frontman, they had a shot at persuading some labels to give them another chance. Blue set up a showcase for three labels and brought in Macy Gray to get her singer-songwriter opinion. As they performed, their chemistry was palpable. Bennington's vocals were out of this world, and Macy Gray leaned over to Blue and said, This band's really got something. That new singer is the real deal. It was high praise, and the first time anyone had ever complimented the band's vocals. But all three labels left the showcase, saying it wasn't for them. They're just another rap-rock group. In 
Over the following months, Blue set up more showcases for hybrid theory. Atlantic rejected them. Capital rejected them. Interscope rejected them. Virgin, Mercury, Jive, Disney, Island Def Jam, Universal, Radioactive, DreamWorks, MCA, RCA, AM, and Arista all rejected them. Columbia said, I didn't get it before and I don't get it now. But Blue kept going. He got five more labels to agree to attend a showcase. The band, once again, left their blood, sweat, and tears on the stage. But at the end of the night, the consensus was clear. There was no hit potential, and each label respectfully passed. So Blue set up yet another showcase for A&R executives. Blue says the band performed like they were in a room filled with 50,000 screaming fans. They left it all on the stage that night. It was the best showcase Blue had ever seen in his career. So exhilarating, he was certain the labels would be blown away. But they were rejected yet again. Blue walked backstage disappointed, but he told the band how incredible they were, that the right label would want them, and to keep up the good work. He got in his car and screamed at the top of his lungs. He couldn't believe it. Two full years, a name change, and a brand new singer later, and they were still overlooked. By his count, 44 labels, 44 labels had rejected them. Bennington said it didn't seem to matter how hard they worked. No matter what they did, the labels found a reason they weren't good enough. It was stressful and exhausting. After their 44th rejection, the band started losing steam. Blue's belief in the group alone wasn't enough to sustain all seven of them. They were each working multiple jobs to fund the endless requirements of an unsigned band. Brad Delson's parents started pushing him to go to law school. Mike Shinoda's folks echoed similar concerns. But that's when Bennington jumped in. Yes, they'd all been riding this rejection train longer than he had. Yes, it was completely understandable that they start considering other career paths but he wasn't going to give up on what they had. He said, We're going to be the biggest band in the world, and nothing is going to stand in our way. Blue said it was sweet, if a bit corny. Like watching the underdog misfits talk themselves up before the big game. But it was inspiring, and the group got to work writing a hit. A short while later, the band returned to Blue's office with their latest demo, It had a new song on it called Untitled. Not exactly a great start, but Blue hit the play button. It started slow, with a simple piano line. Then Bennington and Shinoda's voices intertwined in a layered, tension-filled musical dialogue. Then, the chorus. I tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. Poignant lyrics. It was a hook. It was good. Really good. Blue says that day was a milestone. Now they had the name, the lead singer, the chemistry, the sound, and the songs were flowing. He started sending their demo to top labels. Then the phone rang. It was Warner Music. They were interested, but not in the band. 
Warner Music made Jeff Blue an offer to hire them as their VP of A&R. Two letters Blue only dreamed would appear on his business card someday. Blue said Warner was the best label in the country. It was an amazing offer, and he'd love to work for them. But he had one stipulation. He wanted to bring along hybrid theory and make them his first signed act. It was an unusual request. Warner made it clear they'd be open to looking into hybrid theory eventually, but only after Blue signed his employment contract. Sensing their hesitation, Blue clarified. His acceptance was contingent on a record contract for hybrid theory. Warner pushed back again. They said, let's get your deal signed. Then, once you're in-house, we can look at signing bans. Remember, Warner had already rejected hybrid theory a total of three times before. But Blue believed in the guys. He said, we're a package deal. Then something interesting happened. In September of 1999, Macy Gray's I Try hit the airwaves, and it became an overnight smash hit. And suddenly, Blue's phone started ringing off the hook. Every label suddenly wanted the guy responsible for I Try on their payroll. Blue got an offer from Epic Records that doubled Warner's initial offer. He nearly dropped the phone. He was unable to speak. That silence prompted Epic to up their offer even more. Blue managed to string together a few words. He asked Epic if he could bring along hybrid theory. They said, maybe. We'll look at it after you're hired. But that wasn't good enough. So Blue called Warner back. They said they couldn't double their offer to match Epic. But if he signed on with them, what they were willing to do was meet his initial request to sign Blue and Hybrid Theory as a dual deal. Sold. Over the next few months, major changes happened for Hybrid Theory over at Warner Music. They signed their official record contract. They were connected with a manager and a producer, and they started putting together a final track list for their debut album. But in that last department, they were discouraged, unsure if they were headed in the right direction. So they asked Blue, their new A&R person, to listen to their latest demo and give them some constructive feedback. So Blue grabbed a yellow legal pad and a pen, ready to take copious notes. He popped their demo into the CD player and started listening intently. By the last bar of the last song, Blue realized 38 minutes had passed and he hadn't taken a single note. That couldn't be right. So he listened again on low volume and a third time on loudspeakers. But still, he had no notes. Instead, he had goosebumps. Bennington and Shinoda's voices were perfect. The arrangements were masterful. There were no filler songs or filler words. He said it wasn't even an album. It was a work of art. The band couldn't believe what they were hearing. All six of them fell together in a group hug. They were ready. But 
true to form, there was still one teensy problem. It appeared there was another band in the Warner Brothers stable called Hybrid. Word came down from the corner offices that the band would have to change their name again. They said, you've got to be kidding me. So Delson and Shinoda started brainstorming. A few days later, they sat Blue down. The search was over. They'd found the perfect name. Blue says in his book that Shinoda spread his hands wide like he was unveiling a precious gem. And he said, Platinum Lotus Foundation. But Blue thought it was awful. Too many syllables. No one would ever remember Platinum Lotus Foundation. Pass. A few days after that, Delson came back with another new name, a better name. Plear. P-L-E-A-R. Plear. But Blue said it was even worse than Platinum Lotus Foundation. Plear wasn't a word or even a nice-sounding made-up word. Hard pass. Another week went by, and Blue gathered the band around a table at Warner and started a game of free association, a safe space to toss around potential names without judgment. That's when Bennington piped up and said, What about Lincoln Park? Heads nodded slowly. There was a Lincoln Park in his hometown. In fact, there was a Lincoln Park in many cities, so it would feel familiar to a lot of people. Plus, it would get them right next to Limp Biscuit in record stores. But just before everyone agreed, someone shouted out one last idea. What if it was spelled L-I-N-K-I-N? That way, they could secure a domain name. So, it was settled. The band would become Linkin Park, but keep Hybrid Theory as their album title. In October of 2000, Hybrid Theory by Linkin Park was released. The first single, One Step Closer, made its way onto K-Rock, the most influential alt-radio station in the country. And in no time, it made the station's top five countdown at number one. Three more singles were released, Crawling, Paper Cut, and In the End. And a huge billboard at the iconic Tower Records went up on Sunset Boulevard, showing the band and their album at 14 feet tall looking down over every music label in Los Angeles. In its first week, Hybrid Theory sold 45,000 copies. By its second week, they were selling out shows. By its second month, they had an official fan club with 10,000 members. Then, the unthinkable happened. The album achieved certified gold status before Christmas, meaning 500,000 albums had been sold. A week later, Blue presented them with their certified platinum plaque. One million copies sold. The following year, Hybrid Theory became the best-selling record in America, beating out Jay-Z, NSYNC, and Britney Spears, with sales exceeding 100,000 copies per week. 
Later that same year, it became 2001's biggest-selling record worldwide. And by 2005, Hybrid Theory achieved certified diamond status, selling 10 million copies. 10 turned to 30. And in the end, Linkin Park, the group rejected by 44 music labels, went from zero to the highest-selling debut album of the 21st century. Every story of rejection has its familiar markers. Frustration, doors slammed in faces, and an endless chorus of no's. But every tale of rejection also has its own unique inner story, too. When Jeff Blue was trying to get his own band a record contract, he didn't succeed. So he recalibrated. He decided to become an A&R man. To achieve that, he became an intern in the mailrooms of record labels. Then he became a rock journalist, then a music publisher, then a band manager. The band Zero wanted to be rock stars, but they had to learn how to write good songs. They had to learn how to present during a showcase. They had to fire their lead singer. Then the band had to change their name, not once, but twice. The critical element in all that zigging and zagging was their ability to adapt. There is a truism in life. Write your goal in pen, but write your path in pencil. Linkin Park always looked to Jeff Blue for workable feedback. If the band had been unwilling to change, they may have never achieved their spectacular level of success. And if Jeff Blue had been unwilling to take alternative routes in his career, he may have never got to the top of the music business. Adaptable people know when it's time to let go of the original vision to make room for a better one. Every rejection is an opportunity to make yourself better. It doesn't mean you sell your soul. It means you listen intelligently to feedback. You selectively pick and choose what criticism to take to heart. You change and evolve and improve. Be stubborn about your goal, but be flexible on the details. Jeff Blue once said that rejection can have two effects on people. It will either break their spirit or it will make them try harder. 98% eventually abandon their dreams, but the remaining 2% are the people this podcast is all about. The band nobody wanted the band Jeff Blue staked his career on, would go on to sell over 70 million albums worldwide. Never, ever give up. Linkin Park. Studio Albums, 7. Grammy Awards, 2. Grammy nominations, 6. First rock band in history to reach 1 billion views on YouTube. Total views, 10 billion. In memory of Chester Bennington.
The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. We regret to inform you, our director is Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. The major source for this episode is One Step Closer by Jeff Blue. Follow us on social at apostrophe pod. If you like this episode, you may also like Rejecting Bad Out of Hell from Season 1. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.